Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm Cole Sharman. Now, normally the show is hosted by Carla or myself, but this time we flipped it on its head. And now Daniel Woods is hosting and interviewing me, which is strange to say the least. But Daniel provides a lot of research into the cyber insurance market. So we thought we would discuss the insurance and primarily the instant response ecosystem in more depth. So let's see how this goes. And everyone interested in the space should certainly check out Daniel's research. So I hope you enjoy. I first met Carl through a project I'm working on that began with some sentiment I was seeing on Twitter where certain digital forensics investigators had this feeling that the insurance industry had begun gatekeeping IR work. So they were concerned that now a lot of work goes through a cyber insurance policy and this is cutting certain firms and certain individuals out of the market. So I began to explore this through a mixture of um, studying the insurance company's websites and also interviewing participants in the ecosystem. And through this, I met Carl. And I think my interview with Carl was particularly interesting because he has this unique perspective on the market. He speaks to many different players. And also, I think what will make this an interesting interview is he's free of some of the political concerns that some of the other participants have in terms of speaking about companies they do business with. So, um, yeah, so I'm basically going to re- do and go through the interview we've already done. Um, So yeah, so my first question to Carl would be, how does your job role kind of touch on incident response? Who do you speak to? And what does that involve? Yeah, absolutely. So as a recruiter, you know, we are, we're the intelligence center, as I say to my clients, you know, we are the we are the epicenter of how things function in the market, uh, in the within the ecosystem. So, you know, I am sitting there working with, you know, the law firms, the insurers, and the IR firms, as well as before we even get to the PR firms and breach notifiers, and you know, various other, you know, parts of the ecosystem, especially within the products and solution part. But majority of my clients sit in the law insurance and IR forensic firms um, so you know what we're what we're trying to do is identify how to get these companies to be stronger and better at their job and that is through talent so that's either in terms of talent intelligence so you know working with them to identify what where they where their gaps are what their salaries need to be what their compensation needs to look like um, what they're looking for and how to find it and where to find it more importantly and then also actually you know acquiring that talent and whether that's team moves individual executive hires you know that that's where we see it so we you know I, in my three and a half years I'd probably say in the space you know I probably worked with over you know 50 to 60 firms here in the United States um, and about you know around about 15 to 20 across Europe and the UK cool so I think to certain people in the kind of incident response um, field, they will find it strange that insurers and lawyers, you're mentioning these people because incident response is a technical task. You investigate computer systems. So could you explain a little bit about how insurers and also lawyers get involved in this? Absolutely. So, the, I mean, you know, the easiest way to... The easiest way to consider this is the the insurers are the first part. You know they are the ones that are that the end clients. So you know your Fortune 500, your very small businesses. They will have insurance policies which cover an aspect of cyber, or at least you hope so. In the in this climate, with the amount of uh, risk that you now have, so they are the they are the company exactly as you would do for anyone who doesn't know this market, as you would have insurance on your house or your car, um, trying to not necessarily prevent it, but trying to having that as a backstop um, in whatever way that looks like, depending on the insurance coverage, um, to try and mitigate your risk as a, as a shareholder, as an executive member of, of a company. Um, the, the lawyers, on the other hand, are 
more of your outside counsel, especially from a regulatory standpoint. So obviously there's a number of regulations from GDPR to, to CCPA to support you through that. And a number of the lawyers, especially the specialists, as I'm sure you're going to mention, that are in the cyber and breach world, um, you know, will, will help navigate this market about, you know, what, what customers do you need to notify? What regulators do you need to notify? You know, the, the, they, they really hold a strong position, especially on the regulated businesses, just because you have to notify within a certain period of time. You have to do this to, you know, appease your customers and your shareholders. Um, and they, they know best, you know, not every CEO or every board member understands what needs to happen when a cyber, uh, you know, attack or a breach or an event would occur. Um, and, and having that legal counsel is really important. So they're the two roles they play. Um, there's a lot more to their jobs than, than what it makes it sound. Um, and I think that's really accelerating as well, their, their part that they play in this. And I think as we're going to mention, you know, the breach council has certainly taken a central role in all of this. Yeah, cool. So one, I mean, the reason insurers influence how IR providers are chosen is that as part of the insurance policy, these services are indemnified. So if an organization suffers um, a breach, then part of the insurance is covering the cost of having a lawyer to provide legal advice or a forensics provider to investigate. So how how does that work? Because it's not the case that um, the victim organization can choose any lawyer or any forensics investigator. There are very specific ones they can choose. And who decides who those are and how does that work out? When you're talking about the IR and forensic firms in the way that you describe there, you know, breach councils are certainly certainly the most common, but it, you know, you've also got the insurance panels. So majority of the companies will want to get on them insurance panels. And the and the way that we um the way the market's really accelerated in that aspect is all the insurers will have a number of uh, IR and forensic firms to be able to turn to in, in you know when that happens and you know where that market certainly accelerated is because every company was trying to or is still trying to undercut each other from a price point to make themselves more attractive to to get on them panels but where where the market's now centralizing is the relationships are becoming more key i see around breach councils and, and they they are the the legal aid in this they are the people that are assigned to to a certain case um and they 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 are because of their relationships and their their relationships with the end client, that is where a lot of the trust in terms of outsourcing from an IR forensic point is really beginning to focus and accelerate. So for an IR and forensic firm, you've got to find the balance of a relationship between the insurer, absolutely, but more importantly, the breach councils. And, and there's certain core ones in the market that, uh, that, that will own a large portion of the market share. But I think it's really, really important now for the IR and forensic firms to be able to identify who are the key breach councils and how do we develop that relationship and trust. Yeah, so I guess one important thing here is that these legal firms, they're not just providing legal advice, they're doing more than that. And that's kind of almost the difference between a breach coach, which is a trademark term, and yeah, external counsel. So could you describe a little bit about how breach attorneys or breach coaches differ? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there, there is a lot more to their position. They, you know, they are, they are the, um, you know, they, they're still an outside counsel. They're still that, um, they're not, they're not part of the general counsel unit within, within a company. Um, you know, companies that are fortunate to have that. Um, but they are, they are really an outside resource to understand what is going on. What are the legal, you know, ramifications to what's happened? You know, how do we understand this and how do we go through this life cycle? You know, we have to remember if we go back the, the instant response life cycle is is like you know someone being you know very ill in the family suddenly it's a sudden change of events it's a change of direction for any company and having that outside resource is so so important that settled mind that person you can trust on and communicate openly and i think that's really really crucial in this in this life cycle because companies don't know what the next steps are companies don't know what they're about to go through you know and i you know companies don't want to go through this once hope hopefully they never have to go through it twice and actually know what goes on in this life cycle but obviously that may happen but coming back to your question 
breach councils are, as I said, the outside resource, but they also understand every single thing which is going on in the ecosystem. So as I said, what's the responsibility of the stakeholders? What's the responsibility of the customer, the shareholders, the board? What's the responsibility of the company to the regulations? You know, So they are going through the legal part as well as that. And then obviously we get onto the next part is actually moving their client through that process, as I said. So what? who do they need to partner with? Is it a breach notification business is it that they need to bring in a, a solution business is it you know which IR firm do they need to use and that's really hard because as we as we've discussed previously and as I'm sure we would discuss today there's so many players in that field so it's a bit of pretty much a minefield on how you select that so it's really really important to have that right trust and relationship and resource around you and that's what the that's what I feel the breach councils really give because they, they work with the policyholders um, and the people that are going through this incident and actually, you know, handhold them through that process. Yeah, so there's kind of, to summarize this, there's two parties who are influencing which forensics firm the uh, victim organization ends up hiring. There's the insurer who draft this list of firms that um, they can use called, yeah, called various things, um, pre-approved panel, breach panel and then there's also the breach coach who chooses which firms from this list are hired uh, so yeah so I guess those are potentially the key parameters in which cyber insurance related forensics is different to um, yeah how forensics is traditionally done so I went through those lists that insurers publicly advertise as to with regards to which um kind of which law firms they they advertise. So the result of that was I looked at 24 insurers lists and I will read out the company's names, a couple of them, and you can maybe comment on their background, how long they've been around, just to help um, the listeners yeah, understand the ecosystem. So we have Mullen Coughlin with 19, Baker Hostetler with 14, Lewis Brisboy with 12, and McDonald's Hopkins with 12. So this is 19 of 24. That's almost over 80% of insurers are listing this law firm, Mullen Coughlin. So yeah, my, my question to you is, could you just provide a little bit of insight into the kind of background of these law firms and yeah, your understanding of them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's, you know, I think the I think the market has changed a lot. I mean, like if you look at uh, you know a Mullin a Mullin Coughlin, for example, um, you know they've only been going. You know, I think 2016. I think they were founded a, around that time, and you know the market really has really has changed in that in that aspect, and not so much on the law side because you're still dominated by big names that we will we will all know who are in the in the law market or operating in similar fields. Um, but there has seen, you know, a different surge of, you know, uh, a, a Mullin Coughlin, for example, being a great example of that, you know, really leading the way, but yet only, you know, four years old. And that's because in the law market, it's more dominated by individuals rather than the company names. So when you mention company names to me, that doesn't really stand out. But if you mentioned the key partners in them firms, you know, I would know them, you know, very, very easily. And that's not necessarily because I'm a recruiter and I know people better than I know, you know, the individual businesses. However, you know, I really do believe that this relationship is incredibly, uh, sorry, this market is incredibly relationship driven. And that's what it's, that's what it's really about. And I think that the, the law field has been slow to change, you know, especially as it's, as it's been, you know, it's still evolving. There's a lot of regulations coming into this. You know the the uh, you know NYDFS for example in New York is still maturing, CCPA is still maturing, GDPR is still maturing. You know so there's there's definitely things that that need to happen in the law field, but I think ultimately um, the law firms that are currently dominating is because they're known in this field, so they're trusted, their reputation is there, but also the relationship is, is the key part of that, and you know I. <laughs> I, it does not surprise me that firms that you've named that they're in that market because 
they are offering these services as specialists, although some of them are in bigger firms doing other stuff, but they are specialists to this market and are, are the best known because of the leaders that they've hired or have in place. Yeah, great. So um, then in that analysis as well of 24 insurers breach panels, moving on to the forensics providers, uh, we see similar concentration, maybe not as strong, but there's a handful of IR firms um, that dominate. So these are the Cripsis, Kivus, Charles River Associates, Ankara, Kral, Struts, Friedberg, Arete, these kind of firms. So um, how different would this have been five years ago and how would that compare to the law firms? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... I think it's a lot different to, to the law firms. You know, the law firms are are often household names uh, and have been around for a lot, long while. You know, cyber is still maturing. If you if you are, if you looked at cyber twenty years ago, it wasn't the same space. You know, even five years ago. So, you know, I think the IR market and the forensic market is the one that will most change. Probably probably that and the product market, uh, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but. The market really has changed. You know, Strauss Freeberg got acquired by Aon as an example of that. You know, there's been a there's been more acquisitions. The MA market is really hot. We've seen that this year with Cripsis and, and Palo Alto um, in, in 2020. So, you know, I think Cripsis acquisition by Palo Alto will actually accelerate the market and bring more providers in there because more people will see the potential of uh, of making money or potential of being acquired as as the next step in their career. Um, and, you know, Cripsis was started in 2015. I think Arate was started around 2015. Kivu was started in, in 20, uh, I think, 2009. But Kivu have really, you know, only accelerated in the last two, two, three, four years once the IR market started to fast track. And then you've got the other providers that you've mentioned, which is like your Charles River, your, you know, your Krolls, your Ankuras. You know, yes, they're known for this work, but... You know, Ankura acquired Navigant last year in 2019, which was a real big acquisition for them, you know, costing them a lot of money. But a huge part of that was that forensic and IR part of Navigant's business that Ankura then acquired to get on more panels. So you're seeing very clever acquisitions in the market, which is allowing them to then get on these panels or have the best leaders, which is what Ankura done to get themselves you know, further ahead of some of the other firms. But then you've got a Charles River and Kroll who are, you know, a lot a lot older in terms of maturity as a business and are not just doing that, but have that part of the service, but have other parts to, to complement that and have done very well in that. So, you know, there's all these different companies in the space and that's without talking to new entrants, new companies that have entered in the last two to three years as offshot, offshoots of other businesses. Yeah, great. So there's kind of, a f basically, what we're going to try and dig into is there's different business models of these IR firms. A firm like, say, CrowdStrike would be very different to a firm like Cripsis in terms of their approach to the market. So in terms of the firms who I see listed the most, so Cripsis by 18 of the 24, Kivu by 17 of the 24, do you get a sense why insurers and breach coaches like these firms in particular? Well, I think I think it's three things. I think it's relationships. I think it's um, reputation and trust, and I think it's costings. I think that's the I think that's the three key parts. So you know, a company like Cripsis, uh, you know, are very experienced being run by Brett and Jessica over there. You know, they they understand how to how to move in this market. They understand how to behave, how to how to do the work, um, and I think that goes a long way. You know them. You know, Brett and Jessica will be able to pull in a lot of them insurance panels because of their previous works at companies like Stroz Freeberg and, you know, and, and, you know, and that reputation they have. But also, Cripsis as a business worked out how to price themselves more effectively and outdo, you know, more of the boutique firms who wanted larger margins. Uh, and, and that being able to maneuver and, and and I suppose manipulate the market is incredibly intelligent and has allowed them to to grow that market share very quickly you know we have to remember they're like a four-year-old company and just sold for 200 I think 70 million uh, US dollars you know that is an incredible achievement 
Um, you know, I think I think that's I think that's really really fascinating as a business within cyber. You know, to be able to look at that and see well, what did they do well? You know, and the three things that I've said has you know is is the reason they've done well. They also acquired um, they also acquired very good talent, very very good talent. You know, they've they've really focused on that about getting the best talent from the other firms, being able to poach that and being able to look after them. Now, when you do that, it comes with a hell of a lot of risks because when you're acquiring the best talent to have a lot of A players in the room means you're going to have a lot of politics and a lot of arguments which is where I believe a lot of offshoots of new companies like you know your trace points and your I think your mox fives and you know your, your, your variety of other companies that have then shot off that uh, and Kivu had the same three or four years ago had, sorry two to three years ago had excellent talent and a lot of them then went off to other other places you know Coveware, I think CyberClan, you know, all these different companies where a lot of that talent is then moved on to because people see it their own way and see it in their own direction. So it comes with positives and negatives, but I think that's why Cripsis are seen as the as the leader to the insurance panels because, you know, they have good talent, so you know the work's gonna get done. And at the end of the day, the insurance panels care about cost one hundred percent, but they also care about keeping their clients happy because that makes their job a lot easier and that way they keep their revenues. So they need people they can trust and deliver and that's why the relationship and trust aspect are so, so important when you're considering who do you want to work with and what does this then look like for the future of, of us as a partnership. Yeah, so we're definitely going to return to the question of how they kind of bring talent in because I think you told me Cryptus went from zero to 160 employees within four years, which is insane. But just going back to that question of relationships, where do you see relationships with breach coaches and insurers being formed? It's in two or three ways, really. Um, it's uh, it, you know, it's reaching out directly. Um, a lot of them people will cross paths quite often. You know, the the incident response market uh, and the cyber insurance market are incredibly small markets. Um, and, and I spend a lot of time at you know in net diligence. You know, like a great event in the in the space, a global event that runs different um, you know global. Uh, you know, locations, anything from, you know, Philadelphia to uh, California to London, um, you know, and, and, and that event shows you that, shows how small the space is, same names going five or six times a year, um, same people. And when you go there, you know, as an outsider, as a, you know, as a recruiter, you know, as I'm treated, um, everyone knows everyone. So once I meet someone, they're introducing me to 10 people and that's that's valuable. Like that market is very inclusive, very collective um, and, and them events have have a lot of power because they really give value to the market. Um, and it's, it's very much, you know, an invite, you know, sort of only feel to it because because of because of that. You know, so you've got directly, you've got you got the events. And then the third thing is is just developing, you know, them relationships. So like referrals, networking, drinks, dinners, you know, them sort of things to build up. These relationships don't happen overnight. They are built up over time because, you know, as, as anything in anything that we go through in life, trust is built up over time and trust is such a key uh, component of of each part of the life cycle because of what you're dealing with um you know it can, it takes ages to be made but can be broken in seconds so you have to take care and actually do things very deliberately when you're developing these relationships and it does take time whether you're a recruiter or you're a salesperson or you're you're an insurer it's it's a real crucial part of this relationship and um you know that that's the that's the key part part of it so i think i think like reaching out directly through you know your social media or your networks you know the the event space is really really important to the market to bring people together and then the third way is actually taking that relationship from first part and you know i always say in this market you know <laughs> i always used to think first impressions don't count you know I, I i think they matter but they're not everything as i think first impressions in the ir market is so so important because it really it really can take your relationship onto the next level and i think you know, a lot of IR firms 
I trialed at first with the insurers and breach councils, like try this work first, you know, try this, see how you get on. We then judge you from there and they're assessing them constantly about how well they do the work, do they keep to their time parameters, etc. And that first impression matters when you're on trial because you want that work. You want to be the one that they come to first above all the other firms. Um, so that that's important. So, you know, making sure you're constantly developing and evolving the relationship and making sure you don't stand still is is incredibly important because you you just don't want to uh, you don't want to lose that relationship at all. And how would this change in the times of a global pandemic when conferences are not in person? I know there's virtual versions. It's hard to go out for dinner with someone. Are there any trends you see there? I mean, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's been a real challenge. You know, someone as I, you know, as I see myself as a vendor in the, in the ecosystem, um, it's been a huge challenge. You know, we've changed to video, we've changed to phone calls, we've changed, well, obviously we all did this, but we've, we've accelerated that a little bit more. I used to travel constantly to these events or travel to, you know, go and meet people in, in concentrated areas and have, you know, a, a lot of meetings. That's why the events space really worked in this ecosystem because it brought people together in the room to, to do these transactions. Um, and I think that's why it was really important. But now, you know, Net diligence has kept going, but on a virtual on a virtual scale, uh, and that's great because they've allowed like that sort of network to to keep happening and keep being deliberate, which I think is really important. But on the other side of that, of course, it's not at the same of face to face meetings. So, yeah, it's it, it, you know, have I seen a different trend? I've seen content become really really important. I think people have spread that message about you know, what needs to be improved and, and, and how can we then do that to keep their clients, you know, keep sharing that intel, keep, you know, keep, you know, being able to, uh, you know, network and, and gain that trust. On the other side, I've seen really great initiatives. Now, I'll mention one, CyberScout, um, you know, do multiple things across the ecosystem. CyberScout, uh, through Nate Aspiro has, uh, and Tom Spires at CyberScout, developed a, a trivia for the insurers, breach councils, and IR firms um, to network in. Um, and they actually did it uh, through all different countries. Um, and that's that was really genius because it, it got people on calls with each other, you know, not in a work capacity as well. It lowers barriers. It provides that trust and relationship. And it was just very intelligent. You know, they're a very intelligent business, um, you know, who think outside the box when it comes to, you know, marketing to building relationships and, and stuff like that. And, and that's really, really important. You know, you've got to stand out in this market. Um, and it's really hard when you haven't got to do that FaceTime. So, you know, in 2021, we're unsure where the market's going, you know, within, within networking and within events. So, you know, how are you going to stand out? What are you going to do differently, which is different to competitors to stand out? And, you know... <laughs> A lot of the IR firms are acquiring or, or trying to go more into the threat intelligence space to to try and acquire that data to provide to their insurers or provide to the to the breach councils. And I think that's one route. But I think like what can you do that's similar to CyberScout to actually get more attention, you know, and make sure you stay number one or get to that number one spot wherever your target is for next year. Yep, great. So yeah, relationships are key to kind of becoming integrated into this ecosystem. So once a firm has established those relationships, one thing that seems pretty clear is they get a lot of work. And one problem there that I can see is capacity issues. So could you speak a little bit to um, what is like what is driving the capacity issues and then how firms go about solving them and maybe what the trade-offs are there? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the insurers, um, they are seeing hundreds of claims at any one time. Um, and, you know, if you if you think about a claims examiner or a claims analyst within cyber, that is incredibly difficult to manage and, and go through. Um, and you, you've got to think about the risk levels when you're when you're assessing this, you know, when your your risk levels are in two areas, um, you know, your risk levels are in revenue, because of mistakes, you know, like, you know, miscalculate on a on a claim, misassess on a claim, uh, can lose that client or or cost the insurer money. 
um, or you know on the other side is not just obviously you know loss of revenue it's, it's retention of staff you actually lose good staff and we're actually seeing this more in the insurer market than any other market at this point because the insurance market is getting a lot of churn a lot of people are not staying at the major insurers because there's a lot of new players in the cyber insurance space which are exciting and thrilling and offering better work-life balance and as much as I hate that term it is crucial in the IR market because people will burn out and the retention issues are are frightening you know we're down to I think in the forensic IR firms we're down to I think it's 16 months now in the United States for average life tenure for a person in one company before they move on uh, and certain companies are are down to nine months, 12 months uh, with that because of the high churn. And you get that often with builds. You know, Arate are built very quickly. Cripsis are built very quickly. Kivu have even accelerated and so many firms have. So you do have to be very careful when you're building at that scale. But for me, it's more about the burnout. You know, what are you, how are you, um, how are you challenging this? How are you, <clears throat> you know, the IR market mentality is very much like you work at all hours. If there's a case that comes on at three in the morning and you get that call, you're 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 on. And 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 there is a real challenge with that because the end client expects that they're they're in a problem, they're in an emergency. You know, if I flip it to another scenario, you would if you called nine 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 or nine one one. You know, you you wouldn't want your paramedic to be like, well, I don't start work to you know nine a.m. So I'll, I'll come out then. You know, like. You, you do need to be a, a little bit of response because it can be a matter of life and death, especially if we look at healthcare and, and medical devices. So there is certainly the balance, but I think it's trying to understand what motivates people and, and what, you know, what they're, what they want out of their role and how they then fit into your company culture and ecosystem. And I'm spending a lot of time, especially with the IR and forensic firms, not so much on the insurance firms because they're harder to change their mindset. But on the IR forensic firms, a number of them are starting to wake up to this, to the sheer churn. And you've got to think about the cost of churn. The cost of churn is losing good talent, potentially losing them relationships at the breach councils and, and panels. And most of all, the cost of that, you know, like the, the cost of that, you know, the cost of the replacement, the cost of hiring that person. You know, if you do a lot of research around that aspect, Netflix are a great example of this. They're constantly assessing their talent. What more do they need? How often do they need that? And I've always been a big player of get a chief of staff in to be able to assess this and be able to work with these people in terms of identifying when burnout comes. And there's a lot of science behind that that, that we've studied um, that really helps our companies do that. But secondly, what is the what does the compensation need to look at? And that's where I've been really focused on you know, are we over promising? Are we under promising? Are we over committing? Are we under committing when it comes to compensation to promises to job descriptions, you know, and stuff like that. So we manage that expectation through the life cycle. Of what actually does an instant responder do? Or what does a digital forensic analyst do? Or whatever the position is in the company. The insurance companies need to do the same. Because their average tenure when you just look at purely cyber is decreasing year on year in terms of that because number of new players in the market is accelerating in the insurance market you're seeing that with you know corvus cybercube you know all these different analytical or, or policy uh, maker type technologies are being delivered to the market coming from these big insurance companies and breaking out so you've got to start questioning what more can we do for our employees and how do we keep these here how do we develop them how do we help them and you know the the next part of the research has to be about well what what are the main drivers for people staying in this business? How do I keep them here? And and that's that's what that's what each company has to focus on. Because if you ask me, and I'm sure you will do, what the next five years look like, you know retention is going to be a huge issue of staff because there's not enough people in the market. There's a lot of new entrants into the market. So how do we keep our staff at the moment? The way we're dealing with it and the way we're trying to talk to our clients, there's still slow uptake to actually going and getting a chief people officer or a chief of staff to really focus on that retention issue, on that churn issue, on that turnover issue. And it will start hitting your bottom line, whether you're an insurance law firm um, or a uh, or an IR firm. What I will say is the law firms are seeing slower turnover. And that's mainly because 
I feel they get financially rewarded better, uh, but also get the right balance. They know what they're going into. That's the mentality of a law firm. You know what you're going into. You know what to expect. And there isn't much difference in, in a law. Sorry, there isn't much opportunity elsewhere. The only other opportunity for a lawyer is to go and be a general counsel in-house. Um, and I always feel if you've chosen to go into law and you wanted to be in a law firm, you sort of knew what you were getting into in terms of that work and that level of intensity, that level of responsibility. You knew what that was, and that's a very different mindset. When you're in an IR forensic firm, you can go internal. You can go and be part of a SOC. You can um, go to a vendor. You can go to a law, a law firm. You can go to another consultancy. You have a lot more choice, and it's becoming the same for the insurance now. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the churn is companies are working out how do we – and this is a really interesting space to work in where I love working in is the employer branding. How do we present this opportunity and make this better for someone else? How do we get them from CrowdStrike to a, a Kivu, let's say, as an example? Um, you know, what do we need to say and do and promise and deliver on? What are our values? You know, they're the important things that we need to get over to our candidates, where if they're going to burn out of one company, we're going to make the we're going to make it a better culture for them to come here that will get us better people we would deliver better have better relationships and that will grow our revenues and that's where you've got to think everything within what we're discussing here comes back down to the bottom line comes back down to your profit and that's where you need to focus your time and effort if you want to be number one yeah so i think what's interesting there is some of the burnout churn issues relate to cybersecurity more generally, that there is a kind of pipeline issue for all manner of cybersecurity jobs. It's not just incident response. Um, but one thing I was interested in is there is, of course, an exception that proves the rule, but most of those law firms I mentioned are long-established players. The exception is Mullen Coughlin, who broke away from, I don't know, maybe you can tell me that. Um, but if you look at the IR space, as you've mentioned, um, Cripsis broke away from Strauss Friedberg, and then from uh, Cripsis, many firms have broken away. So what do you think is kind of driving this splintering, and why do we see IR firms breaking away, or IR individuals breaking away and forming firms, whereas we don't see that so much in the legal field? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I don't have the definitive answer in terms of in terms of research, but yeah, obviously Mullen Coughlin was was um, was was a break off, um, you know, and and that 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 does happen. Like, there's never a market that it does not happen in. And your question is, why does that accelerate in the IR forensic firms compared to law firms? And I think the law firms are, like I said. Um, you know, better financed, you know, the law firms I would never look at as an entrepreneurial, innovative, you know, market as such, as the more technology based are, you know, if you're in cyber security as a whole, you are, you are, you know, you're normally an entrepreneur, you're normally a, a problem solver, you know, very innovative in terms of the way you the way you solve problems and, and try and deliver, you know, work. And I think that's, I think that drives that message as a, as a law firm, you know, you are, you know, you follow, you have certain boundaries and certain things that, that come into that. And obviously the non-competes are going to be harder because you're lawyers and you're, you're trying to keep that work. So I think there's, I think there's a number of things in there in terms of mentality and, and the legal ramifications to that. But I also think, you know, there's not loads of law firms being acquired. You know, if you look at the M&A market, there's not a great deal of law firms that are constantly being acquired and maybe, you know, Merlin Cufflin will be the difference and, and actually set the market. But, you know, in the in the insurance market, we've seen a number of, uh, sorry, in the IR market, we've seen a number of companies be acquired. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's what's, that's what's really driving that market. You know, uh, you know, we, we've talked about a couple, you know, like Tracepoint and, you know, uh, even Coveware and CyberClan, you know, all these new companies that have really started up and they've come from being leaders in other companies. And and maybe, you know, Strauss Freeberg was, was you know, the, the starting point of this. You've seen context information security acquired by Accenture. You've seen, um, 
you know, uh, you know, obviously Cripsius being acquired by Palo Alto, you know, people know that this market is being looked at and being acquired. And at the end of the day, we need consolidation. We don't need consolidation of the law firms because the law firms are dealing with the end clients and there's millions of end clients that there is. As the the the, the instant response firms are, uh, are working to get on the, with the same breach councils and the same panels and there's a limited amount of availability, which is why, as I said to you before, Ancura acquired Navigant because they knew they could get on the breach councils and with the breach councils and the panels to develop their relationships and accelerate their business. You know, and when you're doing that, that also benefits other parts of the businesses because once you're in there working on an IR case, you can then flip that by either putting in a tool to to you know remove move them away from that incident and hopefully you know to a better place, but also you're going to be able to sell proactive services and that's really really important to you know because that's where your margins are, that's where your larger margins are to actually give you the profit as a consultancy or a services firm, uh, and that's. Again, companies have also diversified their services. You know, they've also diversified into that, into the recovery market, into the data management uh, part of the market, into the ransomware part of the market. And, and that's also accelerated their revenues. As a law firm has one important job to be that, to be that counsel and to, and to help them through that. Yes, they might have to go to court. They might have to do this. They might have to do that. There's other parts to it. But... The IR firms have worked out there's a lot more opportunity. And when we flip it to the insurance market, the reason that that market's starting to accelerate now is because of the amount of technology that's come into the insurance market. You know, people actually generating policies, people actually being able to price, well, trying to quantify it from a pricing perspective. You know, the, the amount of technology that's having to come in because the risk and the price is accelerating for the insurers has been generated by people spotting opportunities as this market's developed. Now, that's because this market is new and fresh. So in the next five years, the insurance market will be a very different landscape. Um, but unlike the law firms, the insurance market, as we're seeing, is consolidating. The big insurance companies are talking to each other to consolidate into each other. you know, And, and that's because there's too many players in the market and they all can't survive at the size that they're growing. Uh, as much as they're you know, growing revenue and stuff like that, their profits will become slimming down like the like the IR consultants is because they're all having to undercut each other to get more portions of the market or acquire a larger market share and that's what everyone wants because a lot of them are public listed and they want a larger p at large you know large portion of the market share so it's you know the the where consolidation is going to happen is in the IR markets um is in the is in the insurance markets i don't see that in the law firms um, and I think, like I said, that becomes down to uh, the supply and demand. Um, but secondly, uh, the mentality of the markets. And I think that's really, really important when you're looking at, you know, what we do. We're constantly looking at, you know, what's the mentality of the person that we need to hire or we need to go and get for this role and responsibility. Yeah. And that, I think, is a really interesting thing to follow on from. So. When I knew lawyers in, you know, back in graduate school, lawyers to me in general, obviously this was stereotype, seem to be motivated by prestige in quite a conventional sense. Um, whereas perhaps IT professionals are more uh, motivated by, say, independence um, and, yeah, kind of the startup culture. So these, I mean, these are broad kind of sweeping statements. How do they reflect your discussions with people as you try to place them into different roles? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, you know, a really interesting question because, you know, we've looked at this a lot about what motivates people to go there. And, you know, I think when you're talking to lawyers, it's about, you know, it is about prestige of a, of a company, you know, and, you know, it's very much about company names will open doors for you. Um, and that, that's really, really important in the law field. You know, it's very different. You know, it's like being an accounting firm. Uh, you know they're very similar in that in that aspect however on the consultancy side people have realized that company name isn't everything it used to be you know it used to be going to a CrowdStrike FireEye or a, or a Kroll used to be important but now now not so much because as we've discussed you know we've seen the Kivus, your Cripsises etc come to the market um, and be able to 
be able to attract that talent away from there and you know financially is finance is important but actually what are you doing like how much work have you got you know (laughs) when I talk to forensic people no one wants to sit on the bench no one wants to be sitting there these people are individuals who are enjoy fast-paced environments want to move on to the next case they're used to bumping around a little bit Um, but most of all they just want to keep busy they just want to be doing something because it's exciting you know there's a lot of adrenaline there so you know a lot of the candidates that I placed have said to me you know they hate their first couple of weeks when they have to do company training or go through a lot of training because they just want to be working on cases that's what they do day in day out And, and I think that's what's really really important is that you know that's why there's so much movement in the market because people get bored people get bored of the same environment same company so you have to really challenge with that you have to really like um you know think about how you keep these certain individuals especially on maybe shorter cases so they go on to a new client and then someone else takes over you know and you are starting to see that you've got like you've got companies who are siloing people into certain roles so certain people will only do ransomware certain people will only do malware and they do that aspect of the case and then you're seeing other companies who are putting what i would call a you know a 360 ir practitioner on these cases which they will go from the first call all the way to the end of the end of the life cycle and then someone else takes it over from the more proactive side See, so, you know, that could be a longer case than someone who's just doing a certain aspect of, of a certain case. So you're seeing even different models about the roles and responsibilities. And that will help, but I don't necessarily have the research on, on what works best. And I would imagine that it works depending on the individual. And I think there's there's certain there's certain that aspect of it. So I think um I think there's there's certainly an aspect of that difference of, of mentality where the IR people are looking more at the, you know, what's my role and responsibility? What does the company do? What's their influx of work? They're asking more questions around that as the lawyers and even, t- to be honest, uh, the insurers to a degree, although that is beginning to change in 2020, as we've seen, it's more about the company name, you know, the, that sort of thing. Where the insurance market is changing is, you know, work-life balance for one, 100%. But also the question is, you know, well, what technology are they doing? What, you know, why are they different in the market? You know, there's a little bit more excitement around it, exactly the same as the IR market. You know, the forensic companies have to be very careful because I do find they're, this is where we're trying to work on a few of our clients with this when we're looking at employer branding. But they're all trying to sell the same thing. Um, and what people forget is it's a very small market. And when you sell something, and one of the employers or former employers tell uh, tell the individual it's not that, then you quickly lose that trust of the employer. And a couple of companies, I won't name names for this podcast, but a couple of the companies have really found that, that they're starting to lose trust of the employees and trust of the individuals. Now that can, again, have a knock-on effect because we all talk to the insurance panels, you know, me included. You know, so it's, it's that level of reputation that gets round and... Believe it or not, the lawyers or the insurers will still ask me, you know, who's doing well, who's been hiring a lot, you know, in the IR market. So, you know, as I've explained before, trust, relationship, uh, yeah, trust, relationship and reputation are so, so important to this market. So actually, you you have to consider all aspects of what your employer branding is, but also more importantly, who are you hiring and how are you going to get to them? You know, and, and that's where it all comes back to talent at the end of the day, because, you know, your talent is the one driving the relationships and driving the profit margins and the bottom line. Yeah, so there's, there's two questions here. One, one, it seems momentum in terms of hiring seems to be very important. So the firms who are hiring, bringing in talent, it seems from what you're saying that they tend to have a higher quality of service. Do you think that is true? And have you seen... T- uh, firms turn around momentum or is it this kind of arc where it gets better 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 and then it starts to decline I would certainly say that the better firms um, who provide the better services obviously have the better talent I, you know I, I don't know how you couldn't in this market 
deliver the best services without having the best talent. Now, it depends what you believe good or great looks like, depending on your expectation. Um, there's certain companies that are, you know, are near the top who don't have good talent and I'll be interested to see if they can stay there in the next couple of years because they've lost that talent now because they had a great run and and then they let things slip and when you lose when when you, when you lose it a bit like trust it goes very quickly and you lose that momentum very very quickly and then it's a fight to stay up there um it really is because you know as i said companies talk and if the if the service the reputation the quality the speed of delivery isn't there because you haven't got the talent that does get spoke about across the market. You know, I, I've been on, I've been at conversations at Net Diligence or at other conference calls, where the insurance panels and law firms are talking about the talent, are talking about, oh, this person's moved to this place. You know, I'm going to talk to them about about potentially, you know, now partnering up with them, and it's hard to manage for that for that sort of aspect because people are constantly moving, and people are trying to acquire that talent. And I get it, you know, I really do, you know, I think, you know, I think uh, there's some great talent acquisition people in the market that are, that are going to be paid more than most because, because of, um, because they, because they, they attract the best talent and that's what you need. Talent attraction is so crucial to, to the speed of the market. Um, and, and I think that's really, really important. You know, Jenna Zucali, what she did for Cripsis you know, where they've gone from, you know, a very small team to, you know, 160 people and got that acquisition. There's no surprise that your research says that Crips is number one on that panel because, you know, their, their talent is some of the best people in the market. You know, I, you know, you can't deny that. They've, they've been able to acquire heavy, high-level practitioner talent across the board, you know, and they've been able to add, you know, very good services focusing on the quality and speed of delivery. You know, it's key to see and people understand what they do and where they fit into the market. Um, what was your second question on that? Sorry. Um, no, that's perfect. So I did. I have a question that relates to more the kind of traditional view of incident response, where perhaps um, post-breach services are more closely integrated with products. So we've spoken a lot about talent, talent acquisition, but there's a different model that says if you build the right network security products and they're already um in the environment, then the investigator will be able to draw on all of that information and provide higher quality investigation. Um, so I guess one, one question I would ask is, why is it that insurers have perhaps avoided or they're, they're drawing less on those kind of firms? And then also, can you speak at all to how issues like churn are different with that kind of firm that rely more on products than talent but of course, it's a false dichotomy because all firms use a little bit of both. Yeah, well, firstly, we've seen a lot more IR firms go into the product space, and that's mainly because um, it's mainly because you can put a product in, and then more, the, the client's not once you've finished on site, it's not going to be like you know nine times out of ten, no, no, take the product away because they're still scared of this happening again. They're probably chances are say. No, leave the product on site. You know we'll pay for it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it it guarantees you a greater re recurring revenue when you're looking at a business model. Um, I think secondly on that is there are certain product companies who have IR teams to supplement their products, and I think um, certain IR professionals will um, will uh, prefer that because they understand the product. They're seeing one uh, one thing, so it could be easier to do. Um, it's probably a better work-life balance. Um, not always the case, but in more cases than than most. Um, so I think I think that's the second thing to consider. Although you know, when you're when you're working inside a product company, it can be more of a can be more of a you know a certain part of the IR life cycle rather than the full life cycle in certain cases. So it's it's important to understand. You know, as a candidate that's looking into that space, um, you know, what actually are you managing and, and how much do you get involved? Because if you want the exciting, thrilling part, it might not be that it might not necessarily be that part. You might be the, the first responder to have a look at the product 
um, and assess it, but you probably won't be the person doing the full life cycle because the insurance or the or the council would then bring in an IR firm to manage that. Um, the the third thing, the third thing on that is um, to, when it comes to churn is um, is it sort of depends. I think I think the IR firms when they're getting into the product market makes more sense. It allows the company to be more innovative. Um, it seems exciting to candidates um, that there's also a product part. I think it de-risks the company as well to have a product, have another revenue stream. And I think that can become quite exciting for candidates. I think there's a lot of concern if a company's just purely IR consultancy, what's the future? Where does that company go? How does it grow? Um, despite the M&A interest, um, I think there is still that concern. I think if you can say this company does multiple revenue streams if we look at an ancora you know thousands of employees multiple revenue streams got products as well as uh, as well as services uh been around for a certain period you know number of years it does de-risk that you know people that are concerned of that company being sold or that company you know uh you know going out of business um and i think there, there is that um but there is that short-term mentality as we spoke about in the ir market which is uh, you know is still there, so people know that they might not be at a company for long, which is certainly a challenge for businesses. So you can't really get around the churn, even if you have product, but I think product allows you to have a different mentality and a different approach to it, as well as it provides the business with recurring revenues, which will hopefully strengthen the business longer term and appeal to candidates from an employer branding standpoint. Yeah, I think one thing that is fascinating to me seeing um Seeing this is, as you said, perhaps traditional IR was more around forensic investigation being sold as an add-on service to, say, a monitoring solution that was already in the network. Whereas what we're seeing in cyber insurance is that the forensics comes first, and then perhaps the second part is the product. So it's completely flipped this model, which, yeah, I find very interesting. And it seems to me as I speak to participants companies are only really now working out the value of this. So you spoke about it a little bit before, but some companies install endpoint um, endpoint solutions as part of the investigation. And as you say, many clients don't um, disconnect and they're willing to pay a subscription fee to keep that endpoint protection. So there you see a kind of new sales channel for the, yeah, for the product firms. Um, so yeah, so that side of things is fascinating. Um, I did have a, a separate question about something you mentioned, which is often these tasks are outsourced. So there's outsourcing among IR firms. I think particularly in ransomware, some of the kind of the ways the incident response is divided up into tasks that are sent to different firms is yeah crazy. So could you speak a little bit about how that works out and what is driving that? Why some firms will do the negotiation, other firms will do the um, payments for a ransomware case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, outsourcing is very common in the market, which obviously increases the risk. I think, um, I think your the the thing that accelerates this is that there are specialists in the market. You know, there are there are some um, you know there are some companies who are you know. Coveware, for example, who are doing more specialist specialism around ransomware. Um, you know, there's other companies that are taking the you know data management aspect of the of the uh, of the life cycle. There's some who are focusing more on the recovery. You know, I think I've seen TracePoint and a couple of other companies really focus on the recovery aspect of that. And and it sort of depends on you know. Do you want to take this on and do you have to hire specialists? Like, is it worth you going to do this? Is this a one-off case or are you seeing this recurring? If you're seeing an area recurring, you might want to go and hire people to help you do this inside your company and take that, take that level of risk on. Or coming back to your previous point, you might want to uh, acquire or set up a, a, an alliance with a technology company for them to do it. And, and then you can have a I don't know. You know, you take up a markup, or you take a you, know, you take a cost sharing aspect to that. Um, and then the last point is, as I said, you know, do you want to take the do you want to take the financial risk on? And that's when we start talking about ransomware in terms of you know actually holding the Bitcoin or the or doing the negotiations. 
you know, and that's that's what's, you know, the risk is there from a from a you know actually holding a wallet, um, you know, it's it's incredible uh, level of risk, and some companies won't want to do that because their board don't want them to do that, and then there's other companies who will do that, you know, and funnily enough, some of the companies you've mentioned are more willing to do that and have taken that risk and they're getting the financial rewards from it, who are in your top five or six. Um, and, and and some are using brokers to do it because they don't want to take that risk on. And, you know, they take a smaller portion, but obviously, you know, they're limiting what go, what can go wrong. And, you know, the two question is, is what's your risk appetite and where does the risk lie? You know, and that's what the insurers and law firms need to be saying with the outsourcing is, um, you know, why are you, you know, if you're a, you know, they, they outsource it to your number one or two and then they outsource something else, you know, how much do you trust this company? You know, you know, do we need to know them? You know, is that our relationship? And I think there needs to be a little bit more awareness of, of third parties coming into the market and how they outsource that. Um, because I think there is a larger risk than, than what people are realizing to this. But I do understand that it's not for everyone and we are looking to deliver a quality service and sometimes outsourcing that is the, is the, uh, is the best option for that rather than taking that cost on when you don't necessarily need to and you might not have the money to. Yeah, great. Cool. So now I'll move on to just a few closing questions. So the first is related to hiring specifically. They're both just what trends do you see in hiring? And then later I'll ask about trends in the ecosystem more broadly. But in terms of hiring, I'm particularly interested in whether you see um, kind of firms hiring from outside their traditional expertise. So this could be insurers hiring lawyers. It could be law firms hiring forensics forensics investigators, that side of things. But any trends generally in hiring, I'd be interesting to hear. It's, it's a really good question because there's a lot. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the forensic market um, and the IR market, there's probably three trends. You're starting to see companies set up full sales functions, so they can um, have account managers, uh, relationship. Uh, personnel like customer success managers that's beginning to accelerate um, and you know you, you, you Cripsis, your Aritage, your Kroll's you know all these types of companies have that have that and you they're, they're the types of people you often see at the net diligence events is them types of people um, and customer success has really accelerated about what that looks like and how you manage that life cycle um, I think the next thing is is upselling so upselling is becoming a critical component of this because the margins get in, the profit margins are getting smaller on the IR cases. So where do you get your margin, especially as a boutique firm? So, you know, if you're looking for that 25%, uh, 25 point margins on, on, a, on a case, you're just not going to get that. But you can get that on the proactive or the product or, or whatever you're going to put in. So I think developing them relationships is really important. Um, that's the first point. The second point is, 100% you're seeing more uh, IR and forensic firms acquiring talent who have the networks. So what that means is not necessarily in an IR capacity. It could be in an insurer or a law firm and going and getting a specialist in that. And I think you're really going to see that in 2021 to try and strengthen their relationships or strengthen their knowledge base and potentially sell in a different way. Like if you can actually sell, uh, you know, and, and say, this is another service, we have a breach council that we can outsource, or we have this that we can outsource to the end client, that might give the confidence in the insurer, for example, that you can actually do more of the life cycle. And it's trying to acquire more of that life cycle, which can be really attractive, as well as reputation, relationship, everything we've like spoke about. So yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly um, that, I think, I think um, you know. I think we won't ever get away from in the IR market of hiring practitioners globally. I think many U.S. firms are um, looking to hire internationally in 2021, um, and that's because we're seeing a lot of U.S. firms expand into Australia, UK, Europe, Asia. Um, I think I think that's going to be really, really important 
just because of the data management aspect of, of doing the investigations from a GDPR, CCPA, and variety of other um, regulations that are going to come in in the next three to five years. So I think having bases, you've seen that with Ancura, FTI, um, uh, Arate, Kivu, you know, a number of these companies have gone into the UK or Europe or Australia, you know, CyberScout or another one that I think have done it this year. Um, and I think the last part, when we flip it back to the insurance market, is we're still seeing firms be acquired. You know, like in, our insurance firm is going to start acquiring. We've seen it with Stros and Aon. Uh, we've seen it with uh, Lodestone Security being acquired by Beasley. You know, and there's there's a few others out there. You're going to see consolidation in the market. You know, I, I certainly think that. But I think you're going to see insurance firms, as we have done, um, start building cyber practices or risk practices to help with this and we've seen that with the breach response team at Beasley um, as another example so you know I think there's a few other insurance firms from talking to them that are going to start building out these practices or have this type of practice not necessarily from an IR standpoint or a product standpoint but just as an extra you know service to to offer their insurance clients because they're trying, you know, we've got to remember this is a very incredibly competitive landscape. And as I said a bit on the marketing side, how do you get that leg up? How do you stand out in the market? Beasley have that because they offer their breach response team as part of their policy. So how do they how do they then go to the next level? Well, you know, what are Munich going to do? What are Allianz going to do? What are, you know, uh, what are AXA going to do? You know, how are they going to compete with, a company like Corvus Insurance, who are accelerating around the policy side, you know, uh, you know, Cyber Scout have a claims team, but they also have a forensic team and a breach notification team. You know, how are you going to start competing when more companies are trying to acquire that life cycle? But then, how do you stand out in your own market? You know, how do you then how do you then do that? So, I think there's a lot of questions to to be answered, and I think a lot of the companies, um, especially the ones that are sitting on cash, will be wanting to acquire more of that life cycle or get ahead of their competition and all of that comes down to talent and relationships that level of expertise is so so important to have around this life cycle just because of the complexity of it but also of how to stay ahead of competition thank you for listening to today's episode for the latest episodes please subscribe and for future conversations reach out on twitter and linkedin